Welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of Ed's Not Dead. We are back. We're back. We're back. What's up, dudes? Hey. <laughs> okay, so I told you that I've listened to a bunch of podcasts recently. Yes. Um, some of our competitors. Mm-hmm. So tonight, mm-hmm. my goal is I'm going to be the serious, straight guy on the... <laughs> Um, on the show, I'm going to be. Is that is that what's missing? Yeah, I think I, I'm. I had an anxiety attack when I when I was listening to other podcasts that were, were that were boring. We're too goofy. Oh, you think we are? No, no. Okay. All right. It's there's, great. there's a perfect amount of goof. <laughs> Just the right amount. Yeah. All right, fellas. It's good to see you. It's good to be back. This is again because I'm the host and not sure of the episodes that we're doing. I know it's episode 15, but this may be not the last show. Next to last. Next to yeah, last. Yeah, we're going to bang two out real quick. Okay, got for it. For the end of June. All right. As always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. All right, we got a great show for you, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in as always. We've had a lot of interest in the show recently. And we're excited tonight. We have uh, author Phyllis Fagel on the show. Indeed. Who's got a book coming out on August 6th, Middle School Matters. Mm-hmm. I just so happen to be mentioned in the book. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I got a shout out too. Are you jelly? You did too? I did. That's right. You did. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in, there, I'm in there too. <laughs> what are, I'll do is in my copy, I'll, I'll not, write your name in the margin. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you are not in there, but we'll, we'll see. Next time we talk to Phyllis, we'll see if she can get you in her next book. V, V2. Her, Edition yeah, 2. Her next book. Can you put me in your book too? <laughs> Anyway, we're excited to have Phyllis. She's got a great presence on Twitter. Um, she knows a tremendous amount about middle school Indeed, as, yeah. as well as counseling. She's a real expert on the social-emotional development of early adolescence. Yes, so. indeed. So that's exciting. So let's start the way we always do, boys. Show feedback. What do we got? Show feedback. Uh, we have one Twitter response that was a little bit of a dig from our last <laughs> Uh, episode and basically if we can get some context from our last episode was we were talking about what was the article name again from forbes right yeah i thought about looking up the title but i didn't well the 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 author (laughs) that's bad miss wexler natalie natalie wexler who uh has been very gracious via email and and, uh trying to get her scheduled to come on because and has a new book coming out also she has another new she does have a new book coming out on august 6th as well um she wrote a book about the knowledge gap and she told i i guess she listened and and decided that uh we didn't get her 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 synopsis as as correctly as we should have yeah, she, about the knowledge gap yeah we, about we, the knowledge gap we didn't we didn't do justice i guess to her um to her her book um the argument I, I yeah the argument yeah. of her book i and i think i mean we, i mean we read an article on it so obviously we haven't read the book yes um but i think we also veered into a discussion about content versus process which is probably we talked probably more about that than, than the actual than knowledge, knowledge gap. gap. Yeah. yeah, and so maybe I'm I'm surmising here. I don't know if that was her main criticism, yeah. but we'd like to get her on the show. Yeah, also. we're gonna, and that's what Casey's been uh, emailing with her back and forth to yeah. see if yeah. we could get her on actually tonight or next episode. Um, didn't yeah. didn't end up working out just schedule wise, but we will get her on in the. We're working the on fall. it. Yeah, and uh, the other thing, what do you got? We, we got some a previous co uh, colleague of ours. You may know her, Bruna Genovese. Yes, she. Uh, she hooked us up with some awesome professional photographs that we'll be releasing soon. She called us a little goofy. That's okay. Uh, I want to. Robbie plug. took it very personally. He was very, very offended by it. I didn't tell you at the um, time, Bruno, but it hurt my feelings. Jeez. 
Well, I want to. She's wanna, an amazing photographer. Her pictures are amazing. Yep. Uh, I want to give her a plug. Yep. Her yep. website is brunaphotography.com, B R U N A photography.com. Yep. And uh, she does some great work with families and obviously podcasts. Yeah. Because uh, we look really good in yeah. it. Yeah. We're going to get them up on the website and. There's literally no glare oh, on my forehead. Yeah. It's amazing. Check it. Check out Bruna's work. One of uh, I have a picture in my office, as you guys know, um, that she took in California. That uh, I get compliments on all the time that people love. It's her. a great pic. She, she's, yeah. an, she's an incredible artist, and I will mention she was an incredible teacher. Yes, yes. Yep, she was a mm-hmm. she was a great um, yes, she was world languages teacher. Speaks Italian and Spanish. Um, so anyway. And she worked with you guys for a while. She yes. did. Yep. All right. What other feedback do we have, Mr. Sids? Well, not much. We had some other. Well, I mean, some other. <laughs> we had some okay. other stuff here and there on Twitter. Nothing. Some, a few exchanges. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did my friend of the pod uh, and dear friend of mine, Jill Little, texted me yes. and said that she's been listening to the Equity Series podcast uh, to brush up on. Some things that she thinks she needs to know more about. Uh, I guess that relates to race and equity. So mm-hmm. uh, thanks, Jill, for listening. Yeah. That was good. So we, I, every once in a while we get those random connections where people are listening and we're always surprised. Yeah. And well, and a plug for us, I do think last, last summer was any indication. A lot of people listened um, to a number of the interviews and discussions we had just because, you know, as teachers or educators, you do have more time over the summer just to to think about stuff and you're not quite caught in the in the race of like getting things done and then moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next thing. Yep. So, mm. um, yeah, I hope people have a listen and go back and get the episodes that they missed. Yep. And in our, in our final episode of the season, yes, we're really excited because we're going to have the president and CEO of national board for professional teaching. Standards, we are going to have Peggy Brookins. That's on. right. Yep. And she is a big time educational leader and, yep. All things National Board Certification. So good We're excited no- to have her on. Another good hookup, Mr. Sids. You know, berating with emails. Can I make a new rule before we go on? Yeah. Oh. That, and, and look at this oh, this 10-page pro Publica article. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> that uh, your family cannot cook cauliflower or broccoli or whatever so, it is they're cooking. I know, I know. <laughs> so bad. The, the, the stu- it's, it's, it's very heavy stench. <laughs> studio is... Incredibly stinky. It's very stinky. And not to mention, it's hot. It's warm it's, and it smells like cauliflower. Warm cauliflower. <laughs> I, 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 would, I think it makes me feel like Jeff Eggers in the room. Oh, <laughs> poor so, Jeff. Right? Yeah. Any, any word from 1T lately? Oh, you know what? I, I found a video on, of him on Instagram. That is a lie. I swear to God. <laughs> he is not on Instagram. I, well, his wife is. Okay. And there was a recent video that she posted, and it was of the beach, right? And it's kind of far away. There's someone way far away on a bike. And all of a sudden, rides by on a bike, can't really see him. And then she's just following the opposite direction. And she comes all the way around. And who pops into the frame at the last second? One T. <laughs> really? Yeah. How'd he look? He looks good. Yeah. Looked yeah. like a retired dude at yeah. the beach. Yeah, How many years life. is he into retirement? Three? Three or five. I would say four. Man. I'd say four. I'm so jelly. Three or four. All right. Living that sweet life. You know. You know. All right, folks. So tonight we are going to once again have Phyllis Fagel on the show. But before we interview her, we're going to talk a little bit about a recent article from June 18th by Annie Waldman in ProPublica um, called titled how teach for america evolved into an arm of the charter school movement documents obtained show that the walton foundation a staunch staunch supporter of school choice and teach for america's largest private funder 
was paying 4000 for every teacher placed in a traditional public school. Do you guys want to guess what what teachers, what they were granting for <laughs> teachers that were placed in a charter school? Less money. Well, Equal money. No, that would oh, be... Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, it would be more. Oh, more. Surprise. 6000 Jeez. So basically the, the conceit here is that there's been this relationship going back decades now to the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh that there's been kind of this parallel rise in Teach for America, which is now one of the top 100 nonprofits in the country, uh, with the explosion of charters across the country. I think uh, Annie Waldman mentions that between 2006 and 2016, the number of charters tripled in the United States. And a lot of this goes back to uh, resources and foundations that are granting um, – a tremendous amount of money to teach for America, mm-hmm. um, yep. but that also appear to have a real um, interest in the rise and expansion of charters. And so there's this there's this pipeline, I guess, this connection between TFA and charters, and that um, I, I I can't remember the percentage. Anybody remember the percentage of? teachers that are from tfa and chargers was it a third 40 percent. 40 percent. okay so so less than half um but there's also it's also a real relational thing in that guess where the founder of kip got their start yeah yeah tfa 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 um so these two these two kinds of massive sea changes in education in america over the last 30 years have really happened at the same time and been very interconnected um so I, I was, as far as my take on the article, I, um, I, I wasn't surprised. They keep telling us yeah. <laughs> that, okay, there's this connection. Right. So is it bad? Is it good? Is it just a connection? What do you guys make of the relationship between TFA? Is it, is it should we be upset about that because it impacts public schools? I, I, have a, I have a foundational problem with TFA. Uh, just from the premise of the organization, which takes a, a profession, a career, a passion, and boils it down to how many weeks training? Five, five weeks five of training weeks. for people who maybe ostensibly want to be a, a you know a savior in air quotes and want to go into a um, uh, a school or a community that is disadvantaged, and they want maybe they want to you know, show their worth, but by and large, they're not staying there and they're not doing it for the, for the, I I can't say why they're doing it. I I don't want to make assumptions about why they're doing it. Maybe there's an intrinsic motivation to serve. (laughs) He doesn't, but I want to make assumptions. That's that's a first. I'm going to, because I'm making the same assumptions as you. (laughs) I I can't figure out someone's intent. So I, I think I bet you a lot of people go into TFA wanting to do good. Absolutely, but I agree at, with that. But at the end of the day, I had a. Can you imagine being a, a just a regular teacher, surrounded by Teach for America personnel in your school? They stay for two years. I, they don't stay for that long. Thirty percent of its core members leave teaching at the end of their two year terms. Thirty percent. Right. Um, One fourth stay in the classroom for more than five years compared with about half of all new teachers. So beyond the fact that kids recognize this, 
I can imagine it's pretty demoralizing if you're a teacher in there and you have a TFA volu- person who's coming in. You just call them a volunteer. Well, they're you not. Were about they're, to call they're, them they're paid a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I just think it goes against the foundational aspects of of a of a valuable public education. And I think that's what my chief concern is that. Um, so, Robbie, you kind of asked, is it good? Is it bad? Does it matter? And I think it does matter. Um, I think because what has ended up happening is that Teach for America has become almost like a parallel certification track um, for putting people in the classroom. Yep. And under really any other circumstances, you wouldn't put somebody with five weeks of training and give them control and autonomy, well, somewhat a level of autonomy over a classroom of children, not only in classroom of children, but disproportionately the neediest, um, poorest children around in urban centers. So that concerns me because teaching is not a five-week training program. Um, if you're going to make a commitment, I feel like you need to be there for longer than two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just don't see a lot of inherent benefit from sticking unprepared young college graduates into classrooms in our neediest areas um, and then watching them leave at the end of the two years. Okay. Like, to me, it's counterintuitive to what it sh- the system should be doing. I'll take responsibility because I asked the, I asked the opening question. <laughs> but neither one of you answered the question. I, you talked about whether you believe in TFA or not. We were talking about a relationship between TFA and charters. So it's, that's bad. What, that's what the, it's bad. It's <laughs> bad. Okay, that's what this argument is bad. All right, so – We've we've so, talked- so I, I would like to have a caveat to that because the premise there there's something about it that appeals to me. We have the highest turnover rate in schools that are um, in cities and and very disadvantaged communities. We have the highest turnover rate for teachers by far, right? So how do you get more teachers to want to come or to to serve in those schools? Foundationally, there's something that appeals to me where you're getting people to be a part of the educational experience in a, in a disadvantaged community. But what it has turned into and what it has turned into over the last 25, 30 years that it's been around is something that it has bastardized any kind of semblance of positivity for kids. Okay, so let me, let me, let's go back in time because you know I like the history part of this. So as a Princeton University senior in 1989, Wendy Kopp had a radical idea to curb the teacher shortages plaguing America's least resource public school classrooms. Send them to the country's brightest college graduates. Send them the country's brightest right. college graduates. So so let's go back in time. 1989, early 90s. This is pre-loss or erosion of faith in teachers' unions. Uh so this was not this this was not coming about. Her ideas were not coming about as some assault on public school teachers. My guess is is that at this time, um, you know, in 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 areas of the country, public schools were struggling on their on their promise to deliver a, a quality education for kids, especially in areas where there was high poverty. And she thought let's let's get kids that are highly intelligent and that have had advantages let's have them get in and help kids so i i think you know i think that that is um i i think i i also want to talk what, the way hold you on, wait, the wait, way, wait, wait, wait okay, let me finish sorry. let me finish sorry. the other thing is is that 
we talk out of both sides of our mouths on the show. Of course. Because we will talk about the onerousness of certification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll talk about the inadequate job the teacher preparation programs have done in colleges. <laughs> it's secondary education. We'll talk about the the bureaucratic red tape that that we have with you know, all of these things, all of these institutional structures are put in place to protect the legitimacy of public education. And here we have something on the outside that developed naturally. Right. To and, meet a and, need. And okay. what do we try to do? We try to kill it. That's right. <laughs> and that's what you guys and you guys are suspicious of it. Yes. Okay. So you're that's 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 my point. I'm not saying that I'm but, a, but that the I'm way a fan that... of TFA. All I'm saying is is if you look at this institutionally, it 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 again. And you know what? Actually, but it, but it it serves as as a, a f- to show how we have failed our public schools across the country, federally and statewide. When when a vacuum has opened to allow for that kind of insertion of of a private equity funded or private idea to to what's wrong with private there's uh, there's not anything necessarily inherently wrong with private i'm just saying that they're using private funds to fund it and it's they're staying for two years they're leaving they're supposedly these saviors probably mostly white i I don't say any we're going into these disadvantaged schools the assumption business (laughs) <laughs> I'm just saying. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you if I, why, I why can't a wealthiest... public why can't a public school teacher be a savior? I mean, why why is this person we're, automatically we're making, a savior? We're making because we're sending in these wealthy elite people into into very disadvantaged communities, saying, "Oh well, if we just put a well-to-do, a well-heeled person, their their well-heeledness will just." perseverate off of them it will just okay. they'll, they'll get it all <laughs> they'll get it all they'll just get they'll just through osmosis they'll get it okay. that's well, what you, they'll do you know they don't have to be a good teacher well, they don't have to know their content well, here's the thing you they do just, know they just have five years of training you're, you're, you've gone so let me then ahead. ask you another question well, hold on let me so so make a point totally silent. no i'm not let me make a point first okay. of all you use perseverate we all know oh did i really sorry we all know that teaching is a sink or swim business that's that is a quote and it is Oh, to God. some degree it is. It is. To so, some degree it is. Let me ask you this then. Uh, richest school district in the nation, New York, Scarsdale Union Free School District, median household income of $250,000 a, a year. I want to live there. Yeah, that's, that'd be great. I could afford but that. But do you think they'd, they'd be okay with these random people coming in from their to their communities to, to teach their children? Absolutely. Do you think they have, they're pro-TFA in their community? I, I think, I, I don't think parents care all that much. I think parents... I mean, how often? How with many, a thirty percent? How many? With a thirty percent? How many times rate? in your career has um, a parent asked you where you went to college, or asked you what you majored in, or asked you what you were certified in? I've I think it's. I've only taught in. If if you're there and you care about kids and you work hard and you try to help them, mo- that's what most parents care about. Right. Well, I'm, my concern and. You know, maybe I should have done more of the TFA model in terms of how they prepare teachers. My concern is that are the people that they're sending in really prepared and qualified to to work with kids? That's, the, that's the, my concern. Those are legitimate questions. Now, I, I don't, I don't, I completely agree right. with you. And the other thing that it concerns that concerns me is that if they do become predominantly for um, charter schools, right? So I think going back to your historical sort of inquiry. Um, at its genesis, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that 
teach for America model in a small scale where you're taking, yes, people that want to do good, but maybe they want to do good now. They don't want to necessarily dedicate the next 20 years of their career to being a teacher. So I think in fits and spurts, I don't see anything wrong with that model. But what worries me is that it becomes a secondary certification system with minimal amounts of preparation Understood. that's disproportionately funded to charter schools, thereby also giving charter schools a bad name. So you know that I'm pro-charter school, but the whole impetus behind charter schools was for teachers to take ideas into radical ideas and new ideas and implement them in a small setting outside of some of the traditional bounds of a bureaucracy. Okay, so what's better than to have a teacher who's been non when you t- non-institutionalized, right? who doesn't believe in the myths and the norms of what you learn in a, in a traditional teacher preparation program? Because Those would be the ideal people. Well, I'm talking about the genesis of the actual charter school and the idea behind the charter school. So the idea is to take ne'er-do-wellers and put them in. That's the radical idea for the charter school. But I, I think you're, I think you're simplifying that they're near dwellers exclusively. I, I think that, I mean, we're all near dwellers. That's why we go into it. We want to, we want to help kids. True. So I mean, why? And listen, if, if charters need a stream of talent, they do, right? Because our our most our most teacher teacher preparation programs in college colleges directing kids towards charter schools. No, okay. I would doubt it. Where do they do their most of their student teaching? The at public it, schools, local there, public school. There you go. Yeah. So now, I. So you have to. We have to. Well, I think yes. And that, I, that this is an institutional correct. structure. And the reason, the whole reason, the reason it's there is because there's a need and a desire for it, right? Right. So p- back to Casey's point is that people are, in some sense, dissatisfied with their local education system, their local school. So they're looking for alternatives. So this whole movement wouldn't pop up if people were totally satisfied with where they were. So I totally get that. Right. I just. I'm concerned that you're going to take an idea of this charter school and the promise of it, and you're going to be like, oh, we have a little bit of a good idea, and you're going to saturate it and say, well, this is the answer, this is the answer, this is the answer, and then you're going to go, whoa, just kidding. Yes, it worked in these small fits and um, starts, but for an entire system to be based on that, I don't think that that is the case. <laughs> now, another- What are we always talking about with Project Success? <laughs> Radical. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we want to spread it. Now, but let me also did, say, did Casey know how to teach science when I when I said you're going to teach science and English and social studies and, and reading? No. Okay. But I but it, but at the end of the day, I, I is it appropriate to to have teachers train for five weeks before they go into a, a a school that has the highest attrition rates of any other school in the community? No, I mean I I listen. I just agreed with Crable. I think there's definitely questions about preparation. I don't think. I mean, it's like nature versus nurture. It's 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 teaching is not exclusively a sink or swim endeavor. Right. It requires support. It requires knowledge and skills right. and training. I, I agree with that. Um, I also wonder, though, a little bit. We we the three of us would readily acknowledge. I think you already did that. We know very little about TFA's preparation Correct. process. And as a result, but just, also just and, FYI, and this is the guy that slams. <laughs> college programs all the time <laughs> it's true it's true uh, but it, it almost feels like they're they tr- it's tr- the profession is treated as a, a safari I, you're gonna go on an adventure for a couple of years i agree you can stay if you want i'm with you but you can also leave 
I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And just so you know, I am going to reach out to TFA next season to see if we can get uh, somebody from the organization on. Uh, after yes. this episode, maybe not. <laughs> Jeez. They got to counteract it. I mean, you, you they, know, they know. You know, I, the Walton family, Eli, Eli, how do you pronounce his last name? Broad? Eli, Eli yep. Broad? Broad? Well, Brody. these these broad <laughs> these funders, private funders that have, I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. The Walton Family Foundation has a lot of okay, <laughs> and, but they've put hundreds yes. of millions into charters, and they just I who just made somebody just made a one Walton Foundation just made a one billion say it <laughs> say, say it Doctor Evil billion <laughs> commitment to charters that in the for the future, so. I just, you know, even there, I think to myself, you know, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if they showed that kind of commitment to public schools? But then I also have to remind myself, these are private sector entrepreneurs who, just like us, are raised in a way of thinking about what they do Mm -hmm. and what they're interested in. And they're interested in entrepreneurial kinds of pursuits they're interested new ideas absolutely yeah i mean they believe in things like competition and efficiency and uh, and you know stuff that we don't necessarily we weren't raised in as as public school educators so i I feel that i feel that i i suppose it's it's treated as as a lot of uh, i shouldn't say a lot but you know a lot of people think that oh i can teach yeah so i can just go in the classroom just give me whatever you're teaching i can do that yeah i don't like those people either but but that's a large degree of people I think believe that they can go in and just teach and it's fine. Okay, so let me just ask you from a personal perspective: How many people in your interactions over the years? I would guarantee you too, Mister Crable. How many people who have said to you, "I could never do what you do"? I, I think how, that, many, I people think it's a, ha- how I, many people have said to you? It's more of a, I could totally a, do what a you pandering. do. I think it's pandering. I don't it's a find bit that. Of pandering. I don't no. find and that there's, as a, pandering. there's also a little bit of uh, you know I, how do you deal with that okay, in middle school? Incre- how do you deal you're with much that? more cynical than how do you I deal with that in middle school? Well, to be well, it's hard to be honest. A lot of what a lot of what I get is from is actually from parents. Yeah, they say I could never do what you do. Right, because I'm like, hey, just so you know, like this happened, that happened, this happened, and they're like, God, how do you deal with all that? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's just the job, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I, I, I take your point. I take, I take your I, point. I, I've been playing devil's and I would like, to, But I would like to make one last point. Yes. You can get the last word. Thank Mr. you. Graves. So several years ago, and the article does make this point about how several Teach for America alumni have gone on to found some of the most successful charter school networks yes, in the country. Kip. Correct. Rocket ship, et cetera. So several years ago, I did um, interview at a charter school network out in California. Mm-hmm. And so, spent the day with them, interviewing, talking to them, et cetera. And one look, of the things looked just like a public school. Um, no, sorry, no, sorry, no. I interrupted. No, but one of the things I think I told you, Robbie, when yes. I came back, or maybe years later, was there is something different mm-hmm. about the people that elect to go mm-hmm. into charter schools. I didn't ask to see their certification. I didn't ask to see whether they started as TFA. But there is a different way of thinking that is always. Is this working? If not, let's change it right now. <laughs> let's do something else right now. <laughs> and I do think that that, in many ways, is sort of the genesis for a lot of um, a lot of the push towards charters, a lot of the money that goes to charters, a lot about the TFA push about, well, let's try something different. Is not working? Do it now. Don't wait two years. Don't waste two years of a kid's education. Yeah. When, and one of the things you always told me, Robbie, that we're guilty of in education. Let's do it tomorrow. Let's do it tomorrow. Yeah. 
We'll do it. Ne- yeah. We'll do it next year. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, we'll wait. It's a great the, idea. We'll wait till the semester's right. over. We'll wait till the semester's right. over. Right. Because because yeah. because what did John Meyer say? John Meyer said that largely institutions are more interested in legitimacy and stability than they are efficiency and effectiveness. Right. And I mean, and I and that's not a that's not take that for what it's worth. I mean, there's yeah. there's value in legitimacy and stability, and that's what you have in public school systems, but. You know, those entrepreneurial ventures are much more likely to die out because they don't have that stability and legitimacy, yeah. but they're also probably more apt to try stuff. True. Yes. And that's what you saw. Yes. All right. Well, this is this is a good one, folks. Check out Maddie, um, Annie, excuse me, Annie Waldman's article in ProPublica, how, to, how Teach for America Evolved into an Arm of the Charter School Movement. Um, Sorry, I got a little heated here. No, it was great. It was good. good. It was good a convo. It, it was a good. It was a good discussion. People need to take time to read through it. It's a, it's a lengthy piece, but it is uh, very, very, very interesting. It's very interesting and it's very long. Um, thank you, Annie Walden, for for we, we we got a lot out of this. All right, don't go away. Uh, we're gonna have a musical interlude, Mr. Crabs. And we will be back. We are so stoked to have Phyllis Fagel on the show. Off of Phyllis Fagel, don't go away. We'll be right back. We are really pleased to have uh, Miss Phyllis Fagel on the show tonight, guys. Uh, Phyllis helps parents use the middle school years as a low-stakes training ground to teach kids the key skills they'll need to thrive now and in the future, including making good friend choices, negotiating conflict, regulating own, their own emotions, acting as their own ac- advocates, and more. We're going to be talking to Phyllis tonight about what does it mean to, to have a, a powerful and effective middle school set of years for kids and what are some things that parents and teachers can do to really support kids through arguably uh, some of the most challenging time period uh, of children's lives. So Phyllis, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So I'm going to start us off with a a, uh, kind of a broad question. So you have an upcoming book uh, about the 10 key skills that kids need to thrive in middle school. Middle School Matters, it's called. It's coming out in August. Um, Available on Amazon right now. That's right. Pre-order. Going to be re- released in August. If, if you order it now, you'll get it at your door by August. Um, so, so there's 10 uh, key skills that you have listed out for, for, for how to help kids thrive. Obviously, just like a, if you have a whole gaggle of children, you can't pick your favorite one, but give us a broad overview of, of, of the 10. So I really try to capture the different categories that I think are important for kids to master by high, for high school, but not just for high school, but for life. And, you know, they're going to fall into a lot of different categories that are going to cover values and integrity and social skills and learning and things like empowerment and resilience and having coping strategies and right. being able to take risks. So in order to do all of those things, in order to have a strong set of core values, in order to understand who you are as a learner, in order to be able to adapt and to come back from failure and to manage all of the social demands of middle school, you need to be able to do have certain skills. You need to be able to regulate your emotions. You need to know how to advocate for yourself. You need to understand what you're good at and what you like right. and what you're not as good at or what you like less and kind of figure out where your strengths and your interests and your interests 
intersect. Right. And then you need to figure out how to make good friend choices and make good choices in general in terms of your body and your safety and ethics. And there's just so much that you can learn in middle school because of where kids are developmentally. And it's, it's a phase, it's a phase that we tend to neglect as opposed to capture. And I would argue that kids are the most malleable in many ways in middle school as at than at any other time in their life because they're intellectually capable, but they're also still very impressionable. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, and, and I, I wonder if we, if we could start with one of the buckets, which would be a, a big portion of our audience, our listeners, our teachers. What are a, a few things that teachers should be taking away from this list of ten of things that they can do when they have you know classes or you know five classes with 150 kids? What are some things that teachers can do? You know, it's funny. The other day, I was talking to a woman who does organizational planning. That's her specialty. But she wrote a book, her name is Julie Morgenstern, and she wrote a book on parenting, which at first I thought, huh, I wonder what she's doing with parenting when it comes to organization. And what she did was look at all of these research studies to figure out how much time you need to spend one-on-one and how you need to spend that time one-on-one in in order to really create a relationship. And she found that you don't need much time, but you need to be very conscious of how you use that time. And when I spoke to her on the phone, I asked her about teachers. Right. And what she and we talked specifically about teachers who are seeing 150 kids a day and really don't have the time to spend significant one on one time. You know, they can't have lunch with every kid every week. And what she had recommended was that they spend uh, most 70 spend five minutes a week with each kid, right. five to 10 minutes a week with each kid, if you can find a way to carve out that time. But in that time, if you consider the teachers almost all of the time are relating to kids through teaching. They're teaching them how to do something. They're giving them content. And she delineates between teaching and relating. So teaching is when you're giving them information and relating is when they're teaching you something, when they're the expert. So to really take whatever time you have one-on-one with those students to really use it instead of trying to hammer home what it is you want them to do or what you expect their behavior to be or how you want them to complete the work, to use that one-on-one time to say, tell me about yourself. Tell yeah. me about how you think you learn and just kind of shift that paradigm a little bit. And I think that's what we I think that is probably the piece that gets most lost, especially at this age when kids are so hungry for those relationships. We have to figure out a way within this huge, massive system to help kids connect that's, with their teachers and with their peers. That is super powerful. I think um, it really goes to a point that we, we talked about on the show um, two episodes ago where we talked about decluttering your classroom mm-hmm. and and. If if you are an organized teacher, you sh- you can hypothetically you can meet your kids where they are on, on a one on one basis. Let's say if you know that you're going to have small group instruction, and you know that you're going to meet with these X Y Z five kids on Friday. If you, if you can organize your planning in such a way to do that, you can certainly get to to talk with them one on one and get to know them on a, a real foundational level. Exactly. And you can provide, even when you're not one-on-one, you can still provide opportunities for them to be the expert, for them to have their voice be heard. Yeah. I know, I know, Casey, you, you, you used to use, or maybe you continue to use or recommend Google documents or ways or, or buckets where kids can leave anonymous comments or questions. And just to make sure that you're circling back to the students to say, you know, what, what am I missing? What, yep. what do I need to clarify? Or what would you like us to cover? And just making sure it's not a one-way street. Yeah. So let's change a little bit here to parents. Um, 
So certainly teachers have a large role to play and schools have a large role to play. But how do, I guess, one, you know, how do parents help support and implement some of these key skills? And, you know, what if maybe the parent, um, they're, they're not so good at some of these items that you're listing. Is there any way that they can get better at them or self-help themselves or implement things that can help both themselves and their child? Definitely. I mean, if the parent is self-aware and knows that they're struggling, I'm always a huge fan of therapy. I think it benefits pretty much everyone. But beyond that, I think what parents can do and what I often will recommend that parents do is to check themselves and say, ask themselves two things. The first question is, whose anxiety is this? You know, is am I worried that the child, my child, isn't getting their work, isn't writing five paragraphs when the teacher has said that three is fine? Is this my issue? And the other piece of that, or am I the one worrying that my child doesn't have twenty friends when they're really happy with the two that they have and they're really good solid friendships? So making sure that you separate, and that's that can be really challenging in middle school because you're coming out of elementary school where you've, by and large been involved and known the parents and organized playdates and suddenly it's this whole new world where you're kind of exiled and that's as it should be right but you can some parents will kind of latch on and insert themselves where they shouldn't so the second piece of this would be have i said it before so if they're nagging or if they're creating anxiety and emotions are contagious so often what teachers will tell me is that the kid is fine but they're so worried about if they're going to call home and tell their parent or if their low grade will disappoint a parent, and that is hmm. where that disconnect comes in, that the, the child would be fine if left alone. Hmm. Well, so let me ask some more specifics here. Um, yeah. And I was really looking at make good friend choices, um, and I was starting to think uh, of some of the maybe inherent value in, and I guess you could say this for all of them, of kids making the wrong decisions. And certainly mm-hmm. as middle schoolers um, – you're going to make a wrong decision somewhere or another. So I guess, you know, whether it's in the context of making bad friend choices or um, learning from any of the mistakes that you make, I mean, so what role does making mistakes play in middle school and what is the appropriate and proper response, you know, for 11 to 14 year olds? So for starters, I think we have to remember that the stakes are so low in middle school. It's such a wonderful time to take risks and that includes social risks. And most of the time kids learn who they like to hang out with and who makes them feel comfortable by hanging out with the wrong people. So you'll see a lot of shifting in middle school in particular, those friend groups are constantly reorganizing and shifting uh, almost all the way through. If you know the, the kids that they hung out with in elementary school, maybe nowhere near the kids they are hanging out in eighth grade. And I spoke to, this guy, Robert Ferris, who's a professor in California, who said that if you if you map out who kids are friends with and you compare who they're friends with in kindergarten to who they're friends with in 12th grade, you know, if you project all the way through, it's only 1% yeah. of the same people. That's crazy. It's crazy. So <laughs> they're obviously learning by experimenting. And the hardest thing for parents is to see their child hanging out with someone who they know is not a good choice. Either they're mean to them or... They're fair weather friends, and sometimes they're kind, and sometimes they're not, or maybe they're leading them down the wrong path. And it can take a really long time for kids to recognize that they're sacrificing themselves. Yeah. So for parents, I would just urge some patience. We have that perspective, and we have that life experience. It's really easy for us to spot a, a 
toxic friendship, it's really, really hard for kids who want to fit in and who think everyone is watching them and want to make sure that they have a place somewhere in that hierarchy to walk away from a friendship that sometimes feels good or that's validating in some other way, serving some need. My my parents wouldn't let me hang out with, with this kid, Bernie. And, uh, <laughs> no, Bernie's not listening. He won't listen. Okay. <laughs> uh, he was a funny guy, and I always, he was like a little bit of a class clown more than I was. He, had, he, he rode four-by-fours, like quads, and he had a, wow. paint, he had a, a, a slew of paintball guns. And uh, <laughs> I could never figure out like, why my parents didn't let me hang out with him. And so I would, I would buck the trend and try to hang out with him on the sly. <laughs> But then yeah, I didn't realize so, until know, older I was older that oh that's why. <laughs> yeah, it's Poor where Bernie. there's a will, there's a way. It's, you know, the, the taking a hard line doesn't often work. Yeah, uh, Phyllis, um, you know, you know where the three of us stand on restructuring middle schools. And yes, thanks so much. Thanks so much for your your <laughs> your, your mentions of project success. We think that's a great way to transition. I up. love project success. I know you do, and you've you've been a big proponent of it. Um, but I, I also know that you know a tremendous amount about uh, middle school counseling. I'm curious about your thoughts on in this 21st century. What 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 should middle school counselors be doing in this process to support kids? So that's another question that kind of gets at the same problem you mentioned earlier with teachers and 150 students. I think the average right now is about 600 to one across mm-hmm. the country. So. What I have been a big proponent of is trying to figure out ways to leverage what the counselors are doing and expand it throughout entire communities and really making everybody in the building, teachers, administrators, a partner in what the counselor is doing. So one example is I would love every single teacher at the beginning of every semester to say, here is a definition of depression. Here is a definition of anxiety. Here are the signs so that you know when you should worry about yourself or a friend. If you're in that situation, I am a helper. You can come to me. If I don't know or I don't have enough information to help you, I'm going to make sure you get the support you need. But I want you to know that people do struggle with mental health issues, and I will get you the support you need. And I, I know that I, whenever I make an announcement to the entire middle school or to a class and say, if you know that you're struggling or if you know someone who is struggling and I give them some language around it and explain the difference between regular puberty, let's say, or regular mood fluctuations and, you know, depression or anxiety or extreme stress, I have never done that and not had at least two students come to see me right after. Wow. And when I've had teachers try it, it's the same thing. And then the other thing that teachers can do to help support the work that counselors do is so much of counseling is labeling emotions validating emotions and helping kids connect feelings to behaviors. So it's not just feelings are not just something that happened to you. I was talking to a teacher actually at an, at a, another, at a school in Montgomery County recently who has this uh, document that he puts up on the smart board every morning. And he asks his students to take, to drag the X or the O to the spot that matches their mood. And it goes from negative six to six. Hmm. And, what he then does is have they circle up and they talk about why they're in that mood. So it's not just, hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I was crying this morning because I got in a huge fight with my mother or I was crying this morning. It's because I got in a huge fight with my mother and they can make that connection that it's a feeling. It's not going to last forever. It's not going to last at the same intensity. It is something related to something happened and I can do something proactive, whatever that might be. And for middle schoolers, it's key that they understand what it means to be, proactive versus passive versus reactive because empowered kids can manage stress 
much better than right. kids who don't feel empowered. So for a teacher, if you've got a student who has, let's say, failed a math test, the kid could do one of three things. They could either be very passive and say nothing and just conclude they're going to be terrible at math for the rest of their <laughs> life. Or, right, or they could rip up the paper and be reactive and right. yell and say, you know, the teacher hates me. She gave everyone else a better grade. Or they could be proactive and say, okay, how should I study differently next time? Or are there any extra credit points? Or are, is there an opportunity for a retake? Or can I go in for extra help at lunch? And the kids who can recognize the difference between those types of things and teachers can reinforce the concepts of being reactive versus proactive versus passive, right. it's a skill that they will take with them for life. Well, and, to, and teach, to that point, teachers can build that into their time before the test, after the test, when they're handing it out, they can have messages on the board that say, here, here are some ways in which you should be thinking about um, or, or con- processing the grade that you got on the exam, or, or these are the things that I want you to reflect upon as part of, like, our, as we analyze the data of your exam. So those are things that teachers can do, and, and that's something that I, I've learned teaching Project Success that um, I learned from my colleague Ginger Berry, who who did that ad nauseum as a former Ginger, as a former um, that's a former former Ginger, ginger former math teacher. <laughs> she was all into uh, really just into the messaging around how are you dealing with with tests and and kind of processing them as they come. Um, the other piece, the the thing I wanted to talk about as well. Uh, kind of from a 30,000 foot question, which is the policy connection. So we, we talked about teachers, we talked about yeah. parents. What about policies? What kind of policies can we do or can we push our, our legislators or, or our boards of education to improve the middle school experience? You know, I would love to see policies around mandating recess, you know, having time for unstructured play. I'm not a huge fan of excessive testing, which I think does nothing more than heighten anxiety and create an environment where you lose learning time. Yep. So any policies that take into consideration the ripple effects of what you're doing. So if you have a kid who is micromanaged every second of their day and they're constantly in these anxiety-provoking conditions, whether they're taking a test, whether it's a classroom test or a standardized test, they're being directed all day long. These are not kids who are going to have any sense of control over their destiny. And one of the best ways to give them back that sense of control is to let them play, to let them figure out how to resolve conflicts because social skills and having social skills are a huge part of resilience. And what we're losing right now is we're creating kids who are learning how to bubble the tests or, you know, take them online, but we're not really teaching kids, creating kids who can bounce back from setbacks. I talked to a middle school counselor who said that, you know, one comment can set a kid off for the whole day. Like the whole day is sacrificed yep. because of one comment. So, so I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but do you find, yeah. do you find that like, I mean, for teachers, testing season is also stressful. And that, I think that is also translated into how they treat kids or how they talk with kids or talk around kids. Don't you think? Absolutely. And counselors too, you know, counselors are utilized to proctor test. Maybe they're in the room That's with true. the kids who have five oh fours. But yes, you have, and then there's all of the regulations around how you do the test and how the teachers train for the test and how the teachers prepare and how you report the results and whether you have the secure room. I mean, it is endless levels of details. And then you have a coordinator who's making sure that everybody is assigned a room and that everybody's needs are met. And, And what are we losing when we do all of that? We're losing the time to do so many things that would be more beneficial for their development, especially in middle school. (laughs) The human connection. Yeah. 
Well, uh, Phyllis, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. It's um, We are definitely going to get you back on. Um, thank you so much for talking to us about the importance of middle school, and, and we're excited to read your yeah, the, the, the new book, book that's out. coming out. Yeah. Um, so for our listeners... The, the book is Middle School Matters, the 10 key skills, need, uh, key skills Kids Need to Thrive in Middle School and Beyond and How Parents Can Help. comes out on paperback on August 6th, 2019. So, Phyllis, where can our listeners find you, website, Twitter, etc., and your work? So, I have a website, which is phyllisfagel.com, and I have a Twitter feed, and that's at pfagel, and my work is appears fairly regularly in the Washington Post and other publications. You're being modest, Phil. <laughs> Just a it's little. All the time. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> well, and and I am a school counselor by day, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it, it shows and it's and it's awesome and we're we are so excited to have you on and uh, we well, thank I, you for I doing what talking. you do. Thank you. It's great to have you on, Phil. Thanks so much. Thank you. Welcome back, everybody, to Ed's Not Dead. Once again, we are brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. Well, that was an awesome interview. It was great yeah. to finally have Phil Fagel on the show. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited for her book. I am, too. It's in the mail. My 15 seconds of fame. Yeah. Right? <laughs> excited to read it. Yep. All right. Last segment of the show tonight. So that means it is quiz time. I have a quiz for you. Uh. So, uh, as you know, we booked Miss Peggy Brookins for our next show. Indeed. And she's going to be talking about, she's the president and CEO of the National Board for Professional (laughs) Teaching Standards, MBPTS. I have the hardest MBP. The the B and the P next to each other, very tough. She's going to clarify for us. And uh, she's going to be talking about all, all about national boards. And uh, the certification process a little bit. Mr. Sutton uh, nationally board certified teacher. That's right. I am NBCT. You are, you are the man. Um, and, and so in lieu of that, I have a quiz for you all about evaluations and certifications. Ooh. This is, is going to be hard. I know. Is yeah. this a teamwork or is this a head-to-head? What, 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 you guys prefer head-to-head, so we'll do head-to-head. Good. Gotcha. All right. Very good. Ready? Number one. It's multiple choice. How many states currently require annual evaluations of all teachers? A, 10, B, 49, C, 27, or D, 3? It's 27. I'm going to go with, that was uh, evaluating all teachers every year. I'm going to make the... Oh, all teachers every, every year? Yeah, it's all teachers every Evaluations year. Evaluations so was all a, teachers. That, oh, that, that, was a, that, three. that was largely a race to the top thing. That was a part of race to the top. I'm yes. gonna uh, since Crable says three, I'm gonna go a little higher and say ten. Ten was a choice, right? Uh, no, uh, ten was a choice, but yeah. the correct answer is twenty seven. Oh, my first. <laughs> but you are correct. Race to the top. It went up uh, about sixteen states from uh, two thousand nine to currently. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but I was wrong. But that twenty seven. God, but God bless those principals. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the teachers, of course. <laughs> All right. Go ahead. And number two, in two thousand nine, only four states required evidence of student learning to be the most significant criterion for evaluations. In 2013, how many states required student growth and achievement to be the preponderant criterion? 
A, 19, B, 8, C, 27, or D, 50? 27. I'm going to tie it all together. Craig Crable took it from me. I, I... I'll go with twenty-seven too. He can get the he can get the right answer there. Ah, uh, it's actually eight. Wow, mm-hmm. I would have thought okay. with race to the top that that would yeah. be such a I mean, important was, component. I mean, that was well, that so, was the heart of the race to the top. Yeah. Time. Another another sixteen states require it to count quote as a significant extent, but not the correct. Okay, correct. We're doing terrible. striking out. All right, number three. That uh, was that was. What was the a hundred percent proficiency year two thousand fourteen? Yes, Jeez. <laughs> from from No Child Left Behind. Yes. Yeah, I think what that was it? it. Yeah, yeah, we so, hit that one, didn't we? Yeah. So, so they just states, <laughs> we're moving on to the next. Thing. States just started having the evidence of learning <laughs> in the right. evaluation two thousand thirteen. Right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, it's funny how that works. All right, number three. How many states now require or allow surveys of students, parents, and or peers to be involved in Ooh, teacher evaluations? That's a good one. Is it a twenty? B, 27, C, 17, or D, 10? I'm going low, 10. Yeah, I was going to say 1, so I'll go with 10. Uh, the correct answer is 17. Jeez, man. 17. Are we, Usually are, one are, of us are, gets these are right. Are we over on all of them? We've, neither of us have gotten any of them. Uh, okay, all right. It's a hard quiz, isn't it? Number five. How many states and, and the District of Columbia require that tenure decisions must be informed End by teacher evaluation ratings? How many what? How many states and, and D.C. require that tenure decisions must be informed by teacher evaluation I'm going to say 46. I'm going to say 51. It's actually four. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Woo! Boy, we weren't even in the ballpark. <laughs> That's embarrassing. What happened there? I don't, so, I don't so, know anything so about only, evaluations, only apparently. Only four states... Hold on. Let me, let me go back to this. Let me, let me, let only teacher let me, evaluations and tenure decisions? Tenured, yeah. That's... I'm I'm questioning the quiz giver. All right. Yeah. I'll look it Aren't up again. Aren't you? Uh-huh. I'll look it up again. Okay. I'll come back. All right. All right. All right. Is this it? This is it. This, this is, is it. it. Okay. <laughs> We've got to get one. One okay. of us has to get one so, of these. So, almost 22 states and DCPS have policies that ensure that persistent classroom ineffectiveness is grounds for a teacher to be dismissed. However, there are only five states and DCPS that directly tie teacher compensation to teacher evaluation results. What are the five states? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, Craig, but why don't we share the load yeah. on this? Ohio? Eh. Colorado? Nope. All right, let me try to. New York? Nope. He didn't listen. Good God. Kansas? Nope. Texas? Nope. Massachusetts? Nope. Did you say Texas? Did you say? Not, not California. Nope. Uh, New York? Uh, I'll you give already said New York. Jeb? Yeah, that's Florida. Florida. Yeah, okay. Florida. That's Florida. Uh, okay. Flo- that's one. Senator from, uh, who's running for president, Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, Hawaii. Hawaii. Yes. Uh, Hold on, no, no more clues now that we have a little okay, bit. Okay, so three got, more. So what do we have? We have yeah, Florida and Hawaii. Florida and Hawaii. Both warm places. Mm-hmm. They must be miserable. <laughs> Louisiana? Correct. Oh, uh, good go. pull. Okay, then I'll go, I'll go the south, too. Uh, Mississippi? Nope. Uh, Georgia? Nope. Darn it. Um, west, West Arkansas, no way West Arizona, uh, Colorado, Utah, Utah. Nice no, said uh, Colorado and Buttigieg. 
Uh, Indiana. 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 Interesting. Is that it? Florida, Hawaii, Indiana, Louisiana, and Utah. Okay, there was no rhyme or reason to those states. Yeah, I was like blue, red, <laughs> okay. south, I can't, anything. I can't. Yep. All right. Do some patterns. And, and uh, you know, since you asked for fact-checking, I will I will fact-check and we'll come back. There and, you go. And I'll let you know. That's <laughs> just because I got it wrong. <laughs> um <laughs> Good quiz, Mr. Sids. Well, you know, you got to get ready. That was, get good, ready. That, was I, that was one of your more interesting ones. I appreciate it that. It's hard. So, do you want me to fact check right now or no? Nah. Yeah, fact. Okay. okay. Fact check. 18, <laughs> states, <laughs> 18 <laughs> states and DCPS require that tenure decisions must be informed by teacher evaluation ratings. Only eight states use teacher evaluations to determine licensure advancement or huh. licensure. I don't know how to pronounce Licensure. Licensure. Um, and the other one was, which one was the one you're questioning? That tenure. Will, ten, tenure and evaluation. Tenure and evaluation. Uh, I don't know. Okay, this is a show killer. Sorry. Let's move on. <laughs> All right, but awesome quiz. Yes. If you have any ideas for quizzes, Ooh. tweet Mr. Siddons. You got something? Mr. I Siddons? do. Okay, what do you got? I actually have one more for you. Oh, Last one. I'm going to get this one. 19 states and DCPS. Oh, this is a new question. Specifically require in their state policy that teacher evaluation results be used to inform and shape blank for all teachers uh, professional salary. development professional development <laughs> god you got one out of one for 50 <laughs> two you got two you got cuz you got louisiana <laughs> and i didn't get one state did i no okay i didn't do so good this time <laughs> that's all right good job mr Graves. well thank you for indulging me yeah, yeah, gentlemen that was, a, that was a good quiz if you have uh, quiz ideas uh, tweet ed's not at ed's not dead by the way i didn't share our at ed's not dead oh, pc us. And um, you can find us on uh, Facebook. <laughs> we are on edsnotdead.com. We are. Facebook. Yes. We are on, you know where are the top 12 Google searches? Mm. Really? If you type in Ed's Not Dead, mm. the first 12 Muy important. are all about us. Stitcher, Google Play, mm. Spotify, mm. edsnotdead.com, Facebook, Twitter, you know. All right. You want to do another plug for uh, Bruna Genovese? Bruna Photography. Dot com. Okay. And thanks for the pictures, Bruna. And they will be Mr. S- Mr. Crable up on the website soon, right? Yeah, probably. Handsome pictures of us. Uh, we're going to send pictures. out a calendar yeah. to one of those count- the firefighter calendar- <laughs> calendars. Yeah, yeah, we are. We're going to do that. <laughs> Crable had ter- terribly bloodshot eyes. Uh, <laughs> and I had dark circles. So, Coffee anyway, fixes that. The, the, yeah, the yeah. school year had taken a, it's, it. It was the, the, it was the last, last week. Last, last, last weekend. <laughs> All right, so uh, congratulations to all those students and teachers and principals and parents that have made it through the 2019, 20, yeah. sorry, 2018, 2019 school year. We're going to do one more show yep. as a f- farewell final till the fall. Yeah, so um, it was a good school year. It's great. And another, another excellent season of Ed's Not Dead. Can you believe we're going into our third season soon? It's wild. What's, it what's, wild. what's, what's, so we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff next year next season yeah but do you want to wait until closing that out with yeah, after peggy brookens yeah we'll wait till our our last last one okay is there, is there stuff that you we're gonna have a closeout conversation i have a questions for you both okay all right it's not Re- a quiz show it's open-ended all right well once again uh you can also email us mr sids at ed's not dead pc at gmail.com and follow us on twitter at ed's not dead pc once again for peter for casey thanks for checking us out spread the word about ed's not dead We appreciate you tuning in. We'll see you soon for our final episode of Season 2. Thanks.